The Start On Demand. On demand. In the wake of the brownface controversy from Justin Trudeau, we're going to learn about the history of brownface and blackface, and we'll get reaction from Supriya Duavetti, who is co-host of The Morning Show at our sister station, 640 Toronto. We're also going to talk about the global climate strike, and you'll hear from a very well-spoken 17-year-old activist in Winnipeg who says she doesn't want to have kids until her planet is livable. And it is the 25th anniversary this weekend of Friends. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Friday, September 20th podcast for The Start. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is facing criticism after a photo from 2001 surfaced in which he is wearing brown face. I'm not going to show you the picture because it's really bad. It's so bad that Canadians traveling in Europe are going to start telling people they're American. <laughs> Big scandal up in Canada. New photos have surfaced of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in blackface. Yeah. As a result, Trudeau has been dropped from the cast of Saturday Night Live. He's gone. <laughs> Now, uh, there is some big news out of Canada concerning Prime Minister and man you're a boot to be surprised by, Justin Trudeau. A photo has emerged of Trudeau wearing brown face at a party. This is pretty bad. And I just want to say, it's not us this time! Suck it, Canada! When I was in high school, I uh, dressed up at a uh, talent show. Uh, and sang Dale in, with, 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 uh, with makeup on. Yeah, this is not good, man. Because you realize what happened here. Trudeau came out to apologize for one blackface and ended up admitting to more. He's like, I did brownface for Aladdin and I did blackface when I sang the song Dale. And now, if you'll excuse me, daylight's coming and me one go home. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Trevor Noah at the with, end the, there, yeah. with the final word on that. Stephen Colbert, very excited about the fact that uh, it's Canada in the limelight for something um, so nasty. Yeah, it was headlines across the world yesterday. London, BBC, CNN, and all the rest talking. And live from Winnipeg. From, live from Winnipeg. From, from, the, uh, from the old market square. Yeah, so not a good day for Justin Trudeau. No. Did he end up doing? What did he end up doing yesterday, other than addressing this? He showed up at the exchange and addressed this. That was pretty much it. Yeah. I don't think there was any other announcement. And if there was, I didn't. It didn't. It didn't cut through all the other questions. But he stood there for a long time, and and he took questions, and he apologized repeatedly, and said that he's embarrassed and ashamed, and he. But he's not the man he was when these pictures were taken, and so he wants Canadians to consider that. So yeah, that's that's one of the questions this morning. Is this even going to weigh in? On your thoughts. So we've got lots to talk about that this morning at 7.07. Ipsos is going to join us at 8.37. We're going to speak with Supriya Duavetti, who is the co-host of The Morning Show at AM 6.40 in Toronto. And she's also a columnist for Global News. She does TV for other media outlets. Question of the day results at cjob.com from yesterday afternoon. How do you feel about Justin Trudeau's apology for the brown face photo and black face video. And 63% say, I reject it. Electing him was a mistake. 37% say, I accept it. Everyone makes mistakes. Question of the day, by the way, brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. I don't know about you guys, but in, in my circles and in our family, we have a text chain between my brothers and their wives and our parents. And it was just going around, you know, and different thoughts from people like, okay, hey, well, hang on. Like, what about this kind of costume? Or what about the timing? And then a lot of people were really upset about it. You know, uh, my both my sisters-in-law are of South Asian descent. And so we're all, all coming from a, from a different angle. And it was fascinating to see how people were or were not taking it seriously w- within smaller scales and bigger ones. Yeah, I've seen everything from what's the big deal. Uh, my friend dressed up as fill in the blank, Michael Jackson, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, 
that was his favorite performer. What's the big deal to, you know, I'm a person of of color and this offends me deeply or I'm a person of color and I appreciate Justin Trudeau's apology. Let's move on. And everything in between. in between and even outside of that in some in some circumstances. Well, in case you need it, and I did need to hear this last night and watched a bunch of stories about it after 6.15. We're going to play you a bit of the history of blackface. I think that's important to learn where it came from, what it means to people who uh, find it offensive and, and why you perhaps should find it offensive and be concerned about it. So that's after 6.15. And then I think we're going to lighten things up because what's today? Today is friends. Wednesday, Sunday, September 22nd is the 25th anniversary of the landmark sitcom. So we're going to celebrate 25. Come on. I know. I hate saying it out loud. 25 years of friends. So we're going to have some fun with that throughout the show. We've actually put a question up on our 680CJOB Instagram story. Who is your favorite friend? So feel free to follow us on Instagram and we'll get into that. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau has moved on from Winnipeg, but questions will follow him on the campaign trail after videos and pictures of him in brown and blackface have emerged. There also will be many of you, we think, our listeners, with your own thoughts and concerns. Some might be questions about the timing of the photo, about whether the incidents are too old to care about. We know at least one of the photos dates back to 2001. And then there are also questions about the impact of the history of blackface in Canada and what it means. That last one is an important question. Global's Shalima Maharaj takes a look back on its long and painful legacy. I'm disappointed in myself. I'm pissed off at myself. And now Canadians who happen to be heading to the polls October 21st must decide how they feel. Cheryl Thompson is a professor at Ryerson University. In my own lifetime, I have been around people or I've been at school where teachers have showed up in blackface, where I've seen events where other people have showed up in blackface. And so given his age, we're in the same decade. I'm also in my 40s. It just didn't surprise me. In the 1820s, minstrel shows became a form of entertainment in the United States. They would consist of comedic skits and musical acts, and white performers would appear in blackface. Using burnt cork or shoe polish, they would paint their face and dress in ragged clothing, leaving the area around their mouths unpainted. On stage, performers would depict the caricatures they were playing as lazy, ignorant, and would use exaggerated accents, ridiculing black people. This has a long history. Um, it's one that's been able to enact it because there's been an acceptance of a racial hierarchy. Many times, sort of people of color, um, that large umbrella term, are not even seen as fully human. So they can be sort of uh, imitated, made fun of. Experts say that practice led to representational violence. Performance is always about power. It's always about who has the right to be on stage and who has the right to take on the caricature, right? And and historically, um, that power has always been in the hands of white males. While blackface minstrels originated south of the border, they were also popular in Canada. U.S. minstrel groups would travel here to perform. There were also many Canadian troops who did their own shows as well. While traveling minstrel shows lost popularity in the 1930s, blackface was being portrayed in some films over the decades reappearing. From Mickey Rooney's portrayal of a Japanese man in Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1961 to a skit performed in Quebec in late 2014 that included an actor in blackface portraying hockey player P.K. Subban. If you're taking on the caricature of these racialized groups, it, it, you, maybe you're not aware of it, but you're actually oppressing them. Shalima Maharaj, Global News. Lots of people say, but I'm honoring P.K. Subban. He's a great hockey player. So in order to portray P.K. Subban in a, in a proper fashion, I, I must portray him in a certain skin color no what what what's what came from that is sort of the birth of a of a stereotype that's put on people and it's just unnecessary drop the makeup let it move on you can weigh in anytime 204-780-6868 we had people weighing in on our 680 cjob twitter poll yesterday where the options that we put out were i'm not voting for him anymore i wasn't voting for him anyway or what's the big deal and some were suggesting well there should have been a fourth option here something along the lines of i'm upset but i still support him or something there was like a missing 
number there. So a missing nuance. Yeah. So many. So there, there's people who are firmly divided. I saw so many people, some of my friends even saying like, can we just drop it with a sensitivity? And others are just completely outraged by this. So uh, we appreciate all of the passionate feedback that we have received. Right. Just trying to get that clap timed in, but didn't quite work. 25 years ago this Sunday, can't believe it's been 25 years since Friends made its debut on NBC. Kelly Moore, you're in the room, which means you watched the show? Oh, yeah. I I, I probably wasn't as fanatical about it as, as a lot of people, but I remember. Like, that was appointment viewing on Thursday nights. You never really had to ask people, oh, what are you doing Thursday? People were watching Friends. Yeah, uh, I, I I still got a chuckle. Phoebe was one of my favorites, but you know, Joey with how are you doing? <laughs> Thank, you thankfully, doing? I was married by that time, and I didn't try <laughs> that pickup line. <laughs> yeah. I would say a lot of people did. I'm guessing Kelly. Yeah. A lot of people did. Yeah. yeah, it was for us. I was in university. So I, uh, I didn't have cable, like we had three channels on the farm, and so I don't remember watching it when it first came out. But then when I got to school in Ottawa, they everybody in um, residence on Thursday night was the same thing. The yeah. TV lounge would be packed with people, and you'd have to get there early to get a seat because, of course, that was the day. You couldn't rewatch it or order it up on Shaw again or anything like that, right? And so, yeah, you didn't want to miss Friends. Yeah, we uh, we have a poll up or a question up at our 680CJOB Instagram. Who's your favorite friend? I'll ask Jeff Braun. Ross. Really? I'm like the one guy on the planet that likes Ross the most. Is, is it because he's so like, hi? That, no, just when he was uh, pretentious and like loser Ross made me laugh. Yeah. Like when he's playing his <laughs> playing his keyboards and stuff like that. The <laughs> the stuff, when the Ross thought he was cool, but he was not being cool. Yeah, and it, there's an argument to be made that Ross is, in fact, the best friend, and I'll use this clip to illustrate it. What is Monica's biggest pet peeve? Animals dressed as humans. That's correct. <laughs> Ladies? Same category. According to Chandler, what phenomenon scares the bejesus out of him? Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance. That is correct. Irish jig guy? His legs flail about as if independent from his body. So that was the one where the where Joey and Chandler and Monica and Rachel made a bet over the apartment. Right. Yep. And if they won the, the contest, this quiz that Ross put together, then then they would the Don't blame the, the questions. So here's the deal. So they had to answer all these questions, but Ross came up with all of them, which means he knew the answers. Sure. So he is, you could say he is the best friend because he knows <laughs> oh, yes. them all. He's the glue, right? Yeah. yeah. He's sort of the uh, central figure that brings them all together. I last night went and watched the first episode again because I knew we were talking about it this morning and I wanted to see, like, does it still hold up as something I would continue to watch? And it wasn't until, like, the 20th minute that I thought, okay, there it is when Ross and Rachel... They set the stage, so to speak, for the fact that these two were going to have a potential romance. Up until then, I was like, I don't know. These guys are kind of annoying. Like in my 42-year-old self, they all have these different quirks that are kind of ticking me off. And then they got to the romance part, and I was like, there it is. Jeff Kerr's in the newsroom right now yelling at the speaker. They're all annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be friends with any of them. Yeah, that's right. You pulled the clip here, Greg. Why don't you set it up for us? Well, the Thanksgiving specials were always really good. And of course, Jennifer Aniston used to be married to Brad Pitt. And that's my second favorite Thanksgiving episode. My favorite one is when uh, Rachel goes into the kitchen to make a dessert and it doesn't really Mm. turn out. But uh, that doesn't bug Joey too much. All gone. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Maybe Chandler has some left. (laughs) That tastes like feet. I like it. Are you kidding? What's not to like? Custard? Good. Jam? Good. Meat? Good. So what ended up happening was Rachel had made a combination uh, trifle and shepherd's shepherd's pie. pie. (laughs) 
<laughs> because the pages of the cookbook got oh. stuck together. Oh, no. And so, of course, uh, Joey absolutely uh, devoured while everyone else was doing everything they could to not eat the dessert. Joey's my favorite. Joey's Absolutely. your favorite. I don't know, yeah, just because, you know, he has this kind of dumb thing about him, and he just it just makes it really funny. There, my least favorite, Kelly, you mentioned you liked Phoebe. She was always my least yeah. favorite of the friends. I mean, it's hard to rank. They're all great. But uh, Phoebe, I, I, I found her to be more, more annoying than anything. Although I really lo- liked her when she got sick because she used to sing at Central Perk. Yeah. And when she started to get better, she was trying to find someone who was sick and absorb their germs because it made her voice more husky. Yeah. That's the one cool thing about, about... I always like that part of getting a cold. Eventually my voice drops a couple of notes and I get a little deeper. But I didn't really care for Phoebe. Chandler was always my favorite. Chenandler Bong. What was that, a TV guide? TV guide. Yeah. Comes back, to Chenandler that was back from the quiz show, or the quiz that That's right. Ross made Yep. <laughs> no, I liked Phoebe. I don't think she's my favorite. I liked, I, I, I kind of liked Chandler probably the most as well. And then Rachel. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. Around this table, Jennifer Aniston is probably the one who's done the most in her career, and yet nobody has really talked about Rachel as their, their favorite friend. Yeah, she, for me, she was actually probably like just the nothing of them, like uh, the one that I have really no feelings about. I don't dislike her. I don't really... I don't want to say I don't like her, but I just didn't like her as much. She didn't as the resonate rest. with you, though. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's maybe it's because she was. I maybe I harbor something against her because she pushed back against Ross. <laughs> he loved her. They so were much. on a break. <laughs> <laughs> the, the episode where she and Phoebe are running in the park, though. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that one where Phoebe's legs are all over the place. (laughs) I thought that was one of the better Rachel episodes. Countdown is on for Manitoba's police commission to come up with a strategy to make Winnipeg's downtown safer. As we were telling you yesterday, the commission has been asked to look at everything from foot patrols to security cameras and increased lighting, and they're to come back with that plan in November. So we know many of those things that are being considered are being done in part through the downtown biz. And so we decided to pay a visit to their offices. They take up a two-story space on Portage Avenue, which is right across from Portage Place. You might even pass it if you walk down to Bell MTS Place tonight for the Winnipeg Jets game. And inside that building is a map on the wall showing the territory they're actually tasked with covering. Here's CEO Kate Fenske. We do manage about 250 city blocks for the downtown improvement zone. So you look at the borders are the Assiniboine River, so we go all the way Broadway Assiniboine neighborhood, um, and then over the Red River, so the Forks also was part of our downtown. Um, and we look up at Portage and Maine, so you've got the Shed, you've got a portion of University of Winnipeg, uh, and then up through Ellis. Um, Exchange District Biz, um, unique uh, neighborhood there, picks up. And then we actually pick up again um, and manage Chinatown North Maine. Sorry, there's a break here. So Exchange yes. comes in the middle. It's its own neighborhood. And then north of the Exchange, Chinatown falls under the downtown parameters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're looking at, you know, how do we manage um, not only safety, but activations and programming events, it, it is a really large area to cover. We're going all the way up to Osborne as well. Okay. So that's a huge area. And it's especially important to think about when we throw out stats for the downtown, like that they're covering everything from Osborne Village to up to the exchange and then north of the exchange into Chinatown. The forks also counts. And so when you hear stats like violent crime in the area increased 10% last year compared to 2017, that property crime went up by 22%. You have to factor in the hundreds of blocks that, that, that they're talking about there, Greg. That's one of the huge challenges of downtown Winnipeg, period, is this vastness, how gigantic a space it is, even if you just think about the area from Assiniboine River north to even Cumberland, and then even if you go from the University of Winnipeg to Portage and Maine, including the Forks, it's a huge, huge area. Now, the downtown biz is always working on bringing more businesses and people downtown. They know a big part of that is safety. It actually employs about 75 people, which I didn't know. 25 of them are downtown watch ambassadors, and you'll know them by their red shirts, those black pants they wear. They're often on bike or on foot. They don't make arrests. They don't carry weapons, but they are trained in conflict mediation, and they can respond to things like first aid calls. If the, uh, there's a worry at a local business, they'll call them. Uh, they might even give directions to tourists. That's why they're called ambassadors. And they provide safe walks if you're worried about getting from your work to the parking lot or other or you know, a, a game or a concert. You can give them a call. On the day of my visit this week, they were all out at 1 p.m. 
tell me where we're standing now. What's this room we're in? So this is really our hub for our downtown watch program. Um, so um, the watch patrols are out on the street where they should be um, and walking their beats. So we have our radio systems that they're uh, on every day. Uh, they're working again very closely with cadets and Winnipeg Police Service um, and also our community homeless assistance team. So every morning they're going to have sort of a setup. You know, is there anything that happened overnight? Are there areas that they want to pay special attention to or things that they need to be aware of? And then again at four o'clock for the evening shift, they'll be doing that same thing as well. This might come, information might come in through police, but is it also businesses that will call in through a safety network to say this this happened at such and such a location overnight or this morning and we wanted you guys to be aware? Absolutely. I mean, we really are here for the businesses that are operating downtown and the people that are spending time downtown. So um, if any businesses are having challenges, they can call us directly uh, and we can work with them. Sometimes it's just checking up on someone uh, to make sure they're okay. So again, working with police, but also our businesses and really being that those extra eyes and ears in the street. Okay, so we're walking across Portage Avenue at Vaughn Street. This is just one of the many skywalks in the downtown that you guys are using. Yeah, so we have our chat offices up here and we offer drop-in programs in the morning um, uh, hours where clients can come in and connect with our staff. So if they're looking to get housed, maybe it's help with an application for an apartment or just other supports. Uh, We have the drop-in hours, so there's a place where they know they can come and chat with our folks. And then also through the rest of the day, really our team is out on the street. Even with all you're doing, and I have to say that... I didn't know half of this was happening. Is there a part of you that's pulling out your hair, you know, with the different stories that go through the cycle or things that will happen to people or violent incidents and you think, well, we're, we're working as hard as we can, but sometimes it feels like we're not making a dent in the problem. I think there's only so much that, that we can do. So we're trying to really figure out is what is our role downtown and who are the key partners that we can work with. So our partners definitely want to pay police service, but Main Street Project and some of the social service agencies, we work closely with Salome Mission. Um, and so it's really about how do we all work together to move the needle. And Katensky says what they've heard from their members is it's not really just about more boots on the ground and more police. It's about more of that collaborative report approach with everyone working together, which could mean more ambassadors or more safe walks or more cadets or whatever the solution is. But it has to, it, the conversation that she says is already well underway is that collaborative approach. And she feels the pendulum is swinging in the sense that everyone's now coming to the table saying, OK, like this benefits all of us if we try to approach this as an initiative of safety for all. Yeah, and it gets to the core issues surrounding homelessness and those that are panhandling, those that are on the street, they get to learn their situation and there's that opportunity to give those people resources to direct them to where they might be able to go. And it's something that downtown biz has been doing for over a decade, this sort of outreach, not just turning a blind eye to it. They are really concerned about the core causes of the things that are causing discomfort for those that don't live in the downtown that come and go. And I I commend them for what they're doing because it's not an easy thing and it's not going to be solved with a snap of a finger or a check for $10 million. No, no silver bullet for this one, but definitely I I found it fascinating to know what they were already doing and then the hope that they have that this collaborative approach will lead to change. But as we talked to that Minneapolis safety guy yesterday about how they have launched new initiatives, which includes a lot more security guards for all the private businesses and uh, more security cameras. He made the point that they're having a really rough year and crime can be a cyclical thing too sometimes. Saturday afternoon, one o'clock is our coverage, three o'clock kickoff. Winnipeg Blue Bombers in Montreal to play the Alouettes. The Bombers, of course, nine and three get back at it after a week off. And no one champing at the bit more than number 33, Andrew Harris. Bob Irving joining us from Montreal. And Bob, uh, did, have you seen Andrew Harris since you got to Montreal? Or is he just uh, pacing back and forth, ready to get out on the field somewhere? <laughs> I think he's walking to Montreal so he can uh, get suitably fired up and focused on the game. No, I haven't seen him, but I've seen him a couple of times this week. And uh, he is very, very anxious to get anxious, I think is kind of the mild word, to get back in the Blue Bomber lineup and go out there and uh, prove to people that any thoughts they might, any negative thoughts they might have about him are unwarranted. And he's determined uh, to continue having the great season he was having before he had to sit down for two games. 
Bombers, of course, uh, looking to maintain uh, their lead in the Western Division. They've got Calgary nipping at their heels along with Saskatchewan. So this continues. Uh, I mean, uh, the Blue Bombers say it that we're uh, zero and zero, looking to go one and one, one and zero oh each week. Uh, probably no truer uh, a tale than uh, this week. No, I think that's true. And Calgary plays tonight, Greg, in Toronto. So if they win that game, they would have nine wins, the same as the Bombers. Now, they'd have four losses, one more than Winnipeg, but uh, that would put a little more heat on uh, the Blue Bombers, who right from day one of the of the season have said that their goal is to finish in first place and get that West Final in Winnipeg. So they only have to win one game to get to the Grey Cup as opposed to having to go on the road and winning two. And so, yeah, they, these games, every week now, we're going to be talking the same way because I don't see Calgary backing off. I really don't. They've, you know, come on strong now. They've won three games in a row, and they look like a very serious threat for first place. So every week the games will just increase in importance for the Blue Bombers and you know, slip up anywhere along the line. And I think it's unreasonable to suggest the Bombers are going to win all six of their remaining games. But a slip up anywhere along the line is going to – cost them a little bit of the edge that they've built up in that race for first place. Is it hard to maintain that edge following a bye, bye week? What do the numbers tell us when it comes to you know taking that break and then trying to get back into it at this point in the season? Well, the numbers for Winnipeg, Lauren, tell us that uh, the bye week is great. They're 6-0 and coming mm-hmm. off a bye since 2017. So uh, that tells us that Mike O'Shea has done a great job of keeping his team sharp after they've sat down for a few days and taken some time away and uh, I guess that stands him in good stead going into tomorrow at least if you believe in historical references uh, because they, they've been they've been ready to go coming off a bye in the last couple of years what's the word on receivers Lucky Whitehead and uh, Nick Dembski well they're both going to play they'll be in the lineup they missed the last game uh, right against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in the Banjo Bowl they will be back uh, I'm also led to believe there's a pretty good chance Pat Newfeld will make his season debut for the Blue Bombers at left guard. Uh, they've been waiting for him to return. He hasn't played a game yet this year. He's been on the injured list the entire season, but he practiced all week. He's 100% recovered from the injury, and uh, we won't know until they release their roster later this morning, but I think there's a pretty good chance Pat Newfeld is going to make his season debut, and that'll be... Uh, good news for the Bombers. He is their best Canadian guard. There's no question about that. And having him back, if in fact he is back, would uh, would be a great addition to the offensive line. So one of the storylines that we'll have Bomber fans with mixed feelings, Bob, is the fact that Kahari Jones, former Blue Bomber quarterback, and was such a big part of the incredible things the Bombers did early in the 2000s, uh, coaching the Alouettes, his first head coaching opportunity, and by all accounts doing a tremendous job. Yeah, it's you know, he's been an assistant coach for 10 years in this league, kind of waiting for his chance. Uh, interesting sidelight, he's interviewed a couple of times with Mike O'Shea to become the Bomber offensive coordinator, and both times Mike went in another direction. Uh, but Kahari's been waiting 10 years, and the way it came about with the Alouettes being taken over by the league, and then they fired Mike Sherman on the eve of the season, and I guess uh, somebody from the league office phoned Kahari and said, hey, how'd you like to take over as head coach in Montreal? Yeah, okay, that's fine, no problem. And so here's Kahari with his first head coaching opportunity, and he's getting all sorts of kudos and credit for the job he's done. The Alouettes are 6-5. and five. They lost their first two games and looked terrible doing it, and now they've caught fire and they look like a contender in the East and Kahari's getting all sorts of credit. And those of us who got to know him when he played quarterback for the Bombers 15 years ago uh, don't think it could have happened to a better guy. He's just a first-class individual and it, it looks good on him. Two different kind of fires altogether, Bob. A tire fire to a team that's <laughs> literally on fire and tearing up the standings. Bomber fans be hoping, hoping that that trend does not continue. One o'clock... Pre-game show, what you got lined up for us before we let you run? Well, you know, the usual assortment of great stuff. Uh, what can I say, uh, Greg? You know, we'll hear from Kahari. I'm going to see if I can get a word from Robert Gordon, who Kahari hired as his receivers coach when he was named the head coach. We'll see how Chris Matthews feels about being let go by the Bombers and uh, being an Alouette and what he might be out to prove tomorrow. Uh, Glenn Young, the Bomber defensive line coach, will have a very interesting description of Willie Jefferson in the year he's having. 
And there are so many other things that we don't have time or I'd be, you know, cutting into every other element of your show. All I can say is, Loren, miss it at your peril. I wouldn't dare, Bob. Yeah. (laughs) It starts at 1 tomorrow, the play-by-play at 3, and then right after that we go into Winnipeg Ice Hockey. So we've got a doubleheader tomorrow on CGOB. Bob Irving, thank you very much for joining us as always, sir. Okay, you bet. Anytime. So Liberal leader Justin Trudeau has moved on from Winnipeg, but we know questions will follow him on the campaign trail after videos and pictures of him in brown and blackface emerged this week. There will also be many of you asking your own questions. Some are about the timing of the photo, about whether the incidents are too old to carry or talk, care or talk about. We know at least one of the photos dates back to 2001. There are also questions about whether he's a changed man or about this distracting from other important issues on the campaign trail. And of course, there are questions about the long and painful history of blackface in Canada. It is all part of a conversation well worth having. Supriya Dwivedi is the co-host of The Morning Show at our sister station 640 in Toronto, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Well, we know we're a vast and diverse country, and we've heard all sorts of opinions at our station in the past 24 hours. But uh, if we could head to what is often referred to as Vote Rich Ontario, how is this playing in your backyard? Well, it's interesting because uh, you noted right off the top there the diversity of uh, opinion. And, of course, Toronto is a very you know diverse and ethnically diverse area, particularly the uh, kind of Vote Rich suburban uh, belt surrounding Toronto, the greater Toronto and Hamilton area are colloquially known as the 905. And I've noticed anyway, anecdotally, in, in, in speaking to people, that there seems to be quite a bit of a generational divide. I think older South Asians in particular are a lot more willing to forgive Trudeau uh, for painting his face uh, in, in, in blackface and, and in brownface than, than younger voters are. And we all know that in 2015, uh, Liberals needed that younger vote to come out. So that'll be interesting to see how it plays out um, vote-wise. That generational divide seems to live also in how people view this with regard to Trudeau's age, 29 at the time of the first transgression that we were discussing initially. A lot of people gave him a pass for his age. Other people are saying he's old enough to know better. (laughs) It's uh, quite a dichotomy of discussion. Yeah, I mean, 29 isn't exactly, you're not 13, right? I mean, he wasn't in that yearbook as a student. He was in that yearbook as a teacher. So that, I think, is, is somewhat interesting that a lot of people are being like, oh, come on, it was like X amount of years ago. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think that that makes it okay. It wasn't, it was, you know, 2001. It wasn't 1951, right? Like, we, we did know blackface was wrong. What I will say and, you know, just for your listeners, so that they know, I, I did grow up in, 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 in Quebec myself. And this isn't to defend Quebecers. This isn't to defend uh, Trudeau himself. But blackface and brownface doesn't have the same sort of visceral reaction in Quebec that it does in other parts of the country. And why is that? I, honestly, I'm not sure. It's like there's this collective amnesia in Quebec to think that, you know, Quebec never participated in any sort of racist act, that they never participated in minstrel shows, that historically that's just that's just plain wrong. But if you look at, for let's say, as recently as like 2013, 2014, Radio-Canada, which is the, the French CBC, they hosted like a, a comedy gala and there were, you know, actors there in blackface. Um, just last year, when Radio-Canada was making fun of uh, Justin Trudeau's uh, trip to India, they, they hosted an end of year sketch and it was rather offensive with like snake charmers and like uh, actors in brown face. Like I, I can't even imagine the English CBC doing that in the last 20 years, let, let alone just last year. I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you taken your own personal opinion on this in terms of how you feel about what's transpired in the last 48 hours? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the photo itself is quite jarring, right? Particularly the first one, um, and obviously, I think it's offensive. I think it was racist to do. I, personally, though, I'm not shocked. Like, I, I wasn't like, oh, my God, this has now completely changed my opinion of him. It doesn't shock me that a guy who grew up in Quebec, who was the son of a prime minister, uh, thought it was like a funny thing and kind of acted like a douche at a party. And the other thing is that the Arabian Nights party in and of itself 
is kind of problematic. It's not just though that like the people that were there dressed up in, in quote unquote Arab costumes without painting their faces kind of get a cookie or a free pass. So what are you hearing with regard to this idea um, that maybe this might be helping Justin Trudeau, at least in the short term, because it's distracting from SNC-Lavalin, the the RCMP uh, investigation or obstruction of such, depending on on how you're looking at it. It's sort of giving a pause in those conversations. And I, I think we're getting a sense that this whole brown face, black face thing isn't moving the needle a ton in terms of in terms of opinion polls. Yeah, and it's, you know, I haven't seen uh, polling that was conducted yet during that period, but I I wouldn't expect it to really move the needle or move the dial. We can't pretend as though we as a country put issues of race and racism and structural inequities at the forefront of a lot of our election discussions, right? I mean, if that was the case, then every Indigenous person in this country would have clean drinking water, you know? So it's like we we don't tend to focus on those issues. We never really have an open discussion about race. It's not considered something we want to do during an election time. It's not considered something that you do in polite company, quote-unquote. So, yeah, I I do tend to agree that it's uh, it's likely not going to move the needle. So if it doesn't move the needle politically, does it move the needle at least on the conversations we're having about this and about the history and the the painful legacy of uh, blackface and brownface and and how we all come down on this one? Yeah, I certainly hope so. And I hope the one positive thing that can perhaps come out of this is that we start to have honest discussions about about race, about racism, about um, the barriers that racialized people, you know, face and just hearing from from more diverse um, commentators and, and and journalists, one thing that was noted at the onset of the campaign was um, just how uh, homogeneous the the, uh, the press corps was that was you know following each of each of the leaders. And I, I think we need more diversity in in newsrooms and in political reporting, not just because it's like checking off you know boxes of oh okay we have a brown person a black person, but because that's the kind of reporting. Um, that ends up informing viewers, listeners, and uh, and readers. So Priya, it's uh, Brett McGarry here. We're getting a text message at 204-780-6868, which is reflective of some of the feedback we've gotten. And it is a detail that seems to have been largely overlooked. And this person says, I'd be more concerned about where Trudeau's hand is placed in the picture, uh, where he had his hand uh, just above this, the woman's chest. Uh, the listener says this is not acceptable, very inappropriate. Uh, what are your thoughts on the way he was handling this woman? I mean, I don't like if the woman had a problem, wouldn't she have said she had a problem? I think we get into a dicey territory when we assume that they're all just damsel in distresses that need to be rescued from big bad men. I, I think the point of, you know, being equal is that you can say back off when you need to. And according to uh, Trudeau himself, uh, that woman was a very close friend of his. Great text message here, and then we'll let you run here. Was 2001 too long ago to be upset about blackface? Question mark. The Globe and Mail reporter mentioned to Justin Trudeau yesterday that high schools in Canada were suspending students for blackface in 2001 when she asked JT, when did he realize it was wrong? So if our educational system thought it was wrong in 2001, how could anyone think JT should get a pass for the timeline? Well, I don't think anybody really thinks he should get much of a pass. I, I think the issue here is that um, most people are looking, most people that are willing to forgive him are looking at his in the entirety of his record, right? Um, and I think that's why a lot of particular communities of color are willing to forgive him because they look at the host of policies um, that he has supported and that he has championed. Supriya Dwavetti, co-host of The Morning Show at her sister station, 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us, Supriya. We appreciate this. Thank you. As you know, I recently moved into a new place in Osborne Village. Big change in my life. And I am slowly accumulating the things that I need. My dad, Smash Gordon, he went out uh, when I was staying with him and came home with like three giant bags full of stuff. He went into the dollar store and went to a couple of stores just grabbing random kitchen-style items. But one of the things that I lost access to in the move was a set of knives. I used to have a block of knives, but 
when like I, you lost it? Well, I like well because I, I don't have them anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. I, just, I was like, oh my gosh. In the sense, he's up, not in possession of them like, any longer. Somebody on the streets just walked around with his butcher block, and we've been hearing a few knife crimes, and I was like, oh my god, these are Brett's weapons. Sorry, I completely misunderstood. When I lived, lost, you don't have them. When I lived on court, and I had a knife block, but I sold it to the kid who moved in because he didn't have a lot of stuff, so I I didn't need all this other stuff because the woman I was moving in with already had all this stuff. So I sold him a bunch of stuff for like a hundred bucks and that included the knife block. So now that I've moved out, I don't have a knife set. I have a set of very cheap steak knives uh, that my dad got me from the dollar store. Just handy to have. Sure. But I keep forgetting that I don't have knives. And I, so the reason I bring this up is I need your help. You listening right now at 204-780-6868. If you've got a line on a decent sale. A, a line? If you've got like a line. Like you've got a hookup on, yeah. on knives? If you're aware of a decent sale, let me know. Because one of my buddies actually texted me a picture from a flyer. I think maybe Canadian Tire uh-huh. a couple weeks ago. And it was like a $500 set of knives on sale for 130 bucks. But I was so busy with... Mm, that's just, a good deal. I know. It was a crazy deal. And I was just busy, I think, feeling sorry for myself or something. So I just ignored it. And then when I finally looked at it, I thought, damn it. You missed. I missed out. So I need a set of knives because I think I've gotten most of the things I, I that I need. My friend Natalie got me a coffee table and some side tables for free. Uh, Michelle Bailey, who's a good friend of this program, set me up with a couple of uh, bar stools. Oh, I my got, goodness. Uh, oh, Natalie also gave me uh, uh, some lamps. So I've got all the stuff, but I need the knives, and I need to know where I can get a decent set for a decent price. Because I went to, uh, there's a shop in Osborne Village called The Happy Cooker. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Beautiful show, uh, beautiful store. I went in there to see what they had, and th- the knives they had were so nice, but 200 bucks for a chef's knife. I, I don't cook enough. Yeah, don't do that. I don't cook enough to, to, to need a, a knife that fancy, even though it felt great. Mm. You need a decent set, but what, more importantly, you need a good... Sharpening tool. My sharpening da- my, tools are a big deal. My dad hardly cooks, but he has one. And lately he's been traveling with it, like from the West Coast, shows up at our house for a visit this summer. He's like, That's his big chore? You need any uh, knife sharpened? <laughs> and he like pulls this thing out of suitcase. Really? And we're like, Are we, we took this on the plane? Like, this is in the checked luggage, clearly. <laughs> I, I would hope like, so. please let it be but in the checked luggage. Because it's like, Oh, dad. You know, dads just have a thing. Oh, like yeah. his thing is light bulbs. And knife sharpening now. <laughs> Add that. So once you get that, I'll send uh, Bob over. Well, you, they also make those, the, the, the not knife blocks, but they're like these sort of tubs where they, I don't know what the, what the, the material is inside them, but it's actually like a sharpening material. They're more like spoke. I'm trying to think. I, I'm picturing, you know, Touch the Universe? Yes. Where, they, where you put your hands on those like little needles and sure. you can make shapes and stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like that, but like you put the knives into so it. So it sharpens it almost every single time you use it. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what you call that, but that, that looks kind of fancy. Yeah. But so he has one of those. First thing, first lesson out of this, don't ever throw anything out. Okay. Come to my house. You've been there. You see my philosophy. Yep. Okay. Don't ever throw anything out because you never know. Greg's got six you knife blocks in his garage in that need, car. Yeah. I might, I just might have a knife block for you. <laughs> They're like in the glove let me, box, let me, let me, let me check what I have in stock. <laughs> well, don't go check Greg Mackling's wares in his garage, which does not, not contain, contain a car. Although it I, does I, contain a car. No. It's buried under 17 sets of knives. Right. Hopefully one of them can come home. Washer Most, fluid. Mostly toboggans, 14 actually. 14 basketballs. If you've got six a, cross-country skis. <laughs> if you have any tips on where pole. I can go, 204-780-6868. Please help Brad get some knives. If you've put on the news this morning or listened to us uh, throughout the morning, we've been talking about how thousands are gathering in different communities and countries uh, all across the world for a global week of action against climate change. And it's kicking off here in Winnipeg with an event at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights this afternoon. And to tell us more about what's happening and what her group is hoping to do, we're joined by Lena Andres. She's a U of W environment environmental studies student and also a representative with the Manitoba Youth for Climate Action team. Good morning, Lena. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us and, and for what you're doing today. What's what's the kickoff point for today? Tell us first about the event that takes place at the museum this afternoon. 
Sure. So at one o'clock, uh, all youth involved in the climate strikes will be gathering at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights for what's called a die-in protest. So all across Canada, we've coordinated across time zones um, for all youth to drop at the exact same time um, to protest the unjust deaths that have come of the climate crisis already and the deaths that will come if we don't take action on climate. What do you say to people who insist this is overblown, that we're wasting our time by letting our kids out of school? And I've even seen people who suggest that this, any school that allows their students to leave at any point this week should have a proportionate amount of their school funding uh, taken back, clawed back from them. What do you say to people with those reactions to what you're doing? I say, first of all, it's my charter right to peacefully protest. I say that the climate crisis is going to be affecting my generation the most. And those of us, those who are older who have come before us have been the ones to cause major harm to the environment. So because they've had the right to a future, they've had the right to have a long, healthy life. We're just fighting for the exact same thing that they've had the privilege of receiving. We just want to have a healthy future. I want to be able to breathe air. I want to have healthy soil and clean water. And so do all youth across around the world. And so anybody saying that schools should be penalizing their students, that's the absolute opposite. The schools should be promoting this. The schools should be allowing their students to go on strike because it's their right to do so. And it's their right to have a future. You spoke to previous generations and mistakes made, Lena. And, and, you know, I know with my own children, I'm amazed at the things they're learning about climate and the environment at a very, very young age. You're just growing up. You've grown up in a different world, A, that we're talking about it, and B, that you perhaps understand it more. My kids will even point out when I've put the wrong plastics into the wrong Mm -hmm. bin because they very much get it at six and eight years old. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because even when I was in school, like I just graduated uh, in June of 2019 and I learned something mildly about climate change in grade 10 kind of I never learned about climate change in school so it's come even after I have passed through the public school system that climate change has been a top priority for even elementary school students you know I was in schools all last week and even yesterday presenting to kids as young as grade three and they've known so much more than I did at their age and it's just it's really empowering and it makes me feel a lot of hope that these young kids already know so much about what's happening and what they can do to help. Uh, Over 150 countries people are participating. I'm just looking at the map on the website globalclimatestrike.net and there's blue dots all over the globe where Mm -hmm. these protests are going to happen. So when you see how many people around the planet, around the world are taking part in this, uh, does that, you know, even empower you even further? Oh, absolutely. It's one thing to be a part of a local group, but it's another thing to be connected on an international scale. Like, it was crazy when Manitoba Youth for Climate Action joined the national network of Climate Strike Canada, but to be a part of something where students are striking worldwide and we're a part of that community, we're a part of a family because we're a part of a movement together and we're creating change and we're doing it as kids. You know, today we got a message from Greenpeace International saying that our Winnipeg strike will be able to take over Greenpeace International Twitter account. And, you know, that's just something that I never would have expected to come of the strike because, you know, people discount Winnipeg. They discount youth. They say that, you know, only Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver are the major cities in Canada, that they're the only ones who get the numbers out. But Winnipeg's going to be pretty intense today at one o'clock and again on the 27th. Lena, I get the same pushback from my kids that Loren receives, and you mentioned the fact that you've been in the classroom talking to young people. Are are they scared about this? Are they concerned? Are they feeling hopeful that they can affect change? What's been the feedback from your perspective while you're in the classroom with these youngsters? I'd say it's a little bit of both. So, of course, when I first start telling them, they're like, okay, like, what is climate change? You know, they start listing things like, oh, like the Amazon rainforest is burning. And they know about Hurricane Dorian. They know about the floods happening all around. So they get scared. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, like, what can we do? So the immediate reaction from these young people is to not sit back and wait for their politicians to protect them. It's for the kids to rise up and protect themselves. So that's a really empowering thing to have an eight-year-old look at you and say, how can I help? Because they want to help and they know that it's their job, it's their duty to protect the planet because nobody else is stepping up to do it. So 
they get excited when I tell them that it's their <laughs> charter right to protest. They're like, what? That's so cool. So it's really interesting to see because um, explaining the charter of rights and freedoms to them is just a really empowering thing, even for an eight-year-old to realize. Um, so yeah, initially they are scared and they should be because climate change is a scary thing and it's literally risking their futures. So they have every right to be scared, but they also have every right to be hopeful because we are making a difference. And I truly believe that our generation is changing the world for the better. Empowering for you, I'm sure. But there also must be some frustration as we have this conversation right now. There are texters uh, saying things like, you know what, go protest in India and China and tell you to do that. Now, there'll be no change here because everyone likes to point the finger at someone else and say Canada doesn't have a big impact here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, even today on our Instagram account, I had somebody comment saying that, oh, you have 100 people come out to your protest and you're going to have a mosquito of an impact um, versus places where there's going to be thousands of students. And to that, I just say, there's a quote, um, have you ever tried sleeping in the same room as a mosquito? (laughs) You can't. So even if we are making a small change, we are making a change. And the most important thing is publicity and awareness. So people can say whatever they want about us because like Greta says, we we don't care if we're popular. We just care if you're making change, you know. We don't have a political agenda. We just want to have a healthy planet and a livable future. So even yesterday, sorry, go ahead. No, you you go ahead. I want you to finish your thought. (laughs) Yeah, I just, you know, people, especially if older people, it's always older people coming at us saying that we don't have any means to be doing this, that we shouldn't be doing this. And it's just those people had the privilege of growing up in a world that they didn't have to be scared about if they're going to, what happens in 10 years? Like, is there going to be a breathable breathable air? Is it going to be clean water and healthy soil? They didn't have to worry about that. And that is the fight. This is literally the fight of our lives. And those people have no right to be saying that we don't have a right to a future. You were talking about Greta Thunberg and and, uh, she was, of course, in front of Congress on Wednesday and had a great comeback. Uh, We're running out of time here. Just 30 seconds on this. We could talk an entire half hour about the No Future Pledge. You've decided to sign this, and I I know you've received pushback on that as well. Can you just tell us what it is very quickly and and maybe the elevator pitch, for lack of better terminology, (laughs) why you've decided to to, uh, sign it yourself, Lena? Yeah, so the No no Future, No Children Pledge is a pledge that I have personally decided to take, um, promising that I will not bring children into the world if we don't have a, a livable planet um, in the future that I can look forward to. I don't believe it's my right to bring a child into a planet that they're going to have to worry about what happens next, that they don't know if they're going to be able to breathe in a couple of years, but they're going to have to deal with the same eco-anxiety that myself and my friends across Canada feel. Um, so the No Future, No Children Pledge is a very personal choice to make and over 200 youth across Canada have already signed it and it's made a lot of people angry and rightly so because it's a dramatic choice I'm 17 years old and I'm pledging to not have children but this is what's causing a conversation to happen and that was the whole point of the pledge the call to action. Lena Andres University of Winnipeg Environmental Studies and with the Manitoba Youth for Climate Action team on the global climate strike which started today and goes until the 27th. Lena thank you very much for this. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It did not rain, at least I don't think so. I was there the day they climbed out of the back of a rental truck. Buzz and Boomer, 35 years, the mascots of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Director of Community and Fan Engagement. Tara Skibo is here from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I, honest to goodness, remember the very moment I first laid eyes on Buzz and Boomer. And uh, so it's uh, incredible to imagine it's been 35 years. Maybe the most beloved duo of mascots in uh, North America. They're fantastic. How are you doing, Tara? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. Um, They, I would agree with you. I think they're some of the best mascots we have for sure in the city across the CFL. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They take Gaynor the gopher in a fight. No problem. (laughs) Might take both of them, but it would happen. They used to beat up on the green drop guy uh, on a regular basis back in the old Winnipeg stadium days. Do you remember that? Well, you know, you might see a remake of that this weekend because green drop has RSVP'd yes for the birthday bash. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> well, there you go. I had no idea they were still on speaking terms. There so that's you go. He, he has said that he will come to the party. I don't know if he'll get a cupcake, but he's coming. So he'll get a cupcake. bash for a reason? It's mm. a birthday bash. Yeah, there's about 500 free cupcakes for the first 
500 kids in the gate, and there's party hats, and, and there's a huge card you can sign for Buzz and Boomer, and it's, yeah, just a birthday party. Love it's going to be this, fun. This is a part of a bigger celebration happening at IG Field. Yeah, so it's our annual fan appreciation on Sunday from 1 to 4 at IG Field, and uh, all the fans are invited to come. It's a free event. We're giving away free stuff like hot dogs and soft drinks and mini donuts. And uh, the stadium is open. If you want to scout out some new seats for next year, it's a really good time to have a look around and see what's there. I have a text message here. Hi, I'm Chris. I was the first boomer who popped out of the truck that very day, 35 years ago. Chris, if you want to give us a call and pop on the air with us, we'd love to have you. 204-780-6868. Happy birthday, Chris. That's so cool. Uh, we've got J- James now is our head mascot guy, and he's been doing it for about 30 years. So I'd be curious to know how long Chris was doing the mascot duties before that. Well, we'll see if he gives us a call. Now, this event on Sunday, you've you've mentioned a word several times that I think resonates well with Winnipeggers is free. Free. Yeah. <laughs> There's like free hot dogs. Tons, it's a free event. Yeah. Tons free of free entertainment. stuff. And I'm not knocking us. I, who doesn't love free? Yeah. I think we've printed off about 6,000 posters that are free. We're going to do autographs. So the entire team is going to be there from 2 to 3.30 doing autographs. And of course, Andrew Harris is a fan favorite. He's going to be there. He he makes his debut back tonight with Montreal, which will be fun. The first 5,000 fans also get old Dutch potato chips. I think I mentioned some free cupcakes. There's tons of free stuff. And then there's stuff on IG Field, too. So you can go out out, out there. There's an um, inflatable obstacle course and slides. You can try your hand at the 40-yard dash, maybe a football toss. Uh, test your skills a little bit. Well, we have someone on the phone here. Chris has called in. Chris, a.k.a. the very hey. first boomer. Hello there, sir. Hi. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing great, sir. Doing great. And Tara, you might want to put on headphones so you can hear what Chris has to say. So how old were you when you uh, got into that costume? I was 24 when I first got into the costume. And uh, Robertson, uh, they, there's probably about six or seven people that they interviewed for the, for the two parts. And we worked with uh, the bird. I forget what the gentleman's name was. Uh, on how to work the costumes and that. And he seen me moonwalk on it the first time. And, and then I worked with them to that day when they played the song to pop out of the truck and do my little dance and moonwalk and everything else. So it was a hot day, though. It, so this is a thing that you try out for. Like, it's a, it's, there's competition to be Buzz and Boomer. Is that right, there Chris? It was, yeah. That, that's correct. And... Uh, it's just like they put me in a room and play the song and say, okay, show me what you can do. And you're just like, well, what do you want to see? You just go for it. And, and luckily I was the one who actually uh, first did it. How long did you do it for, Chris? You know, I only did it for, uh, because of the job that I had, I was traveling around a lot. Uh, only did it for probably about four or five games. Oh, four or five games. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it wasn't long. And also the helmet didn't fit very well at that time. I'm sure they've done improvements since then. <laughs> Fantastic. It's it's not an easy gig, though, you know. I mean, it looks like fun, but it's pretty challenging. Well, he mentioned the heat. I mean, there's got to be days you think uh, you look at them, you're sweating in the sands just sitting there, and then they're in a full, like, I don't know how thick the outfit is, but it's got to be several inches of feathers or what? What is it made out of, Chris? Do you know? Uh, it, yeah, it's just uh, cloth material. Like, uh, it's it's breathable to a point. But that day that we did it, I went there early and had to sit in the back of the truck. It was just myself who went out first, and uh, and Buzz was uh, came out afterwards. But uh, I think it was like in the, like close to twenty seven or so that day, and they had two other guys who came in the back of the truck. Well, I'm sweltering away in this big costume. <laughs> And they came out, and they—I guess—they had some party, party uh, drinks just before that. They're all hooped up. All they had to do was drive the truck out to the front and open the back gate. And I got out and did. We did our stuff that day, but it was hot, very hot, and those things. Set the bird free. Let him loose. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Chris. Fun. I- 
Thanks, Chris. We appreciate you taking time to give us a call. Thanks for the entertainment over those uh, five games. And, and Boomer typically does take a, a beating a little bit from Buzz. Buzz is the the dominant uh, dominant one in that in that <laughs> duo. Yeah, they each have their own character, right, and what they do. It's part of the training, as I understand from James. He's got about six regulars that do it, and uh, yeah, they train and they each have a, a character that they they emulate. They help pump up the team, but it's really about also getting the fans in it. And these fan appreciation events that have taken really taken off in recent years, I think, for all the sports teams we have in Winnipeg. What What is it about it, about trying to give back, at least for the one day? Uh, that's a good question. You know what? It's important to our fans. So I actually spoke to a woman early this week who's a season ticket holder, and she lives almost five hours out of the city. She's going to drive in this weekend for fan appreciation because she's missing one autograph, and that's Andrew Harris's autograph. And he's going to be there, and she wants his autograph to finish her sort of collection for this year. We have some really dedicated fans who need these opportunities to meet and greet and just celebrate outside of the game, right, and spend some time with the 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 people that they love, right? And That's so for some her, serious dedication. Really, like five hours on a Sunday, she's going to drive in and drive back home that day. Now, when they come to a game, they stay overnight. But that's great, and that just speaks to we have some really amazing fans. What time does it start? So it's one o'clock till four o'clock on Sunday at IG Field. Parking. Yeah, that's a good question. Always in the Bomber Store lot, and then overflow in the U lot. Is it paid or free? Everything is free. You don't have to pay for anything. Don't eat lunch. You can grab a hot dog when you get there. Okay. Just making sure, you know, because somebody might get get there and wonder, oh, do I got to pay for parking? Plus, we mentioned the free a bunch of times. You want to clarify for Everything is free. The only thing you might want to bring is something to autograph. Nice. Tara Skibo joining us live. She is Director of Community and Fan Engagement with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. She also brought us some smile cookies from Tim Hortons. Don't forget to get your smile cookies. A dollar from each one goes to the Children's Rehab Foundation. Tara, thank you very much for this. We appreciate the visit. Thank you, guys. We'll see you on Sunday. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.